Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority. I am your host, Aaron Kaster. I'm going to be uh, largely playing backseat driver as usual um, because uh, we're back to the news format. Thank you so much to our guest host last week. That was really fun. We're going to keep doing that. Uh, but we have Stefan and Dave back. So uh, without too much further ado, I will hand you over to Dave for our first news item. So, yes, um, this show, first, we're going to start with the IPCC report. We're going to move into a discussion in the second segment about the tech mine uh, being proposed, massive mine being proposed for northern Alberta. And then we're going to look at Hurricane Michael in the final segment. Yeah, so the, so the sort of theme here is, 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 is the sort of overarching nature of this is, this is the scale of the problem. Uh, second segment, this is us still not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Last mm-hmm. segment, these are the consequences of us not doing anything about it. Beautiful. All right. So, so yes, the IPCC report. So <laughs> global average temperatures have been increasing around two-tenths of a degree per decade since the late 1800s, and we officially reached one degree Celsius of global warming in 2017. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has released a major new report on what might occur to the planet's systems if global warming is kept to 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, above pre-industrial levels and how to achieve this pathway. The major takeaway from the study uh, that is garnering most media attention is the claim that we have only a dozen years to avoid global catastrophe. This is due to recent proof that the 2 degrees Celsius Paris Agreement target will cause more devastation than was previously estimated, and could indeed still be enough to tip us into the demonic, infamous hothouse Earth trajectory, wherein the glacial cycle is flipped on its head and Earth's climate is drastically altered into an inhospitable wasteland for tens of thousands of years at least. Indeed, some have criticized this recent IPCC report for not highlighting the tipping cascades or feedback loops that could be the cause of that unimaginable future. This more ambitious 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway will still come with terrible effects that we are indeed already feeling, but will at least, scientists believe, definitively shelter us from runaway global warming. Being more ambitious, it requires a tighter time frame, namely the cutting of worldwide emissions to 45% below 2010 levels by 2030, hence the 12 years to avoid catastrophe line. And the longer we wait to do anything, the more extreme our measures will have to be in the future. The report also holds it conceivable, however, to overshoot the 1.5 degrees Celsius and then bring warming back down to 1.5 by 2100. This is the way we may be able to ensure the continuation of the Holocene. To do so, we will have to bring emissions down to zero before the limit is reached, or remove carbon from the atmosphere after the limit is exceeded. Overshooting and then reducing, however, will have different and disparate impacts compared with remaining below. The report therefore highlights the problem of equity when thinking about climate change, stating, quote, ambitious mitigation actions are indispensable to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius while achieving sustainable development and poverty eradication. The authors also write with medium certainty that 20 to 40 percent of the global human population live in regions that, by the decade 2006 to 2015, had already experienced warming of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius in at least one season. According to the scientists, the 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway will avert 150 million premature deaths by 2100. In an interview with Democracy Now!, Kevin Anderson of the Tyndall Center argued that, 70%, argued that since 70% of emissions come from 20% of the population, public policy should be tailored to that 20%, stating, quote, When we try to address climate change and reduce our emissions by focusing on all 7.5 billion people, it misunderstands where the actual responsibility for the emissions resides. And therefore, we're not developing policies that need to be tailored to that particular 20%. We must make sure that we don't impoverish people who already are struggling with the current economic system. The difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius is quite stark in terms of water supply, insect death, and habitat loss, and many climate change-related disasters at 1.5 degrees double in impact if we hit 2 degrees. To put the 1.5 degrees Celsius into perspective, even if every Paris Agreement target is reached, the planet will likely still warm by 3 degrees Celsius even though the agreement is officially to keep us at 2 degrees. With no climate policies whatsoever, we're headed for warming of around 4 to 5 degrees Celsius. With existing policies, we're looking at 3 to 3.7 degrees, and with our current pledges, we're headed for 2.6 to 3.2 degrees. Indeed, 
even if we stopped all emissions now, the climate would still be warming and the seas would still rise. The IPCC report, however, definitively concludes that the 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway is affordable and feasible, pointing to provinces, countries, and cities for guidance, stating, quote, subnational jurisdictions and entities, including urban and rural municipalities, are key to developing and reinforcing measures. Barriers to such action include, quote, the unavailability of up-to-date and locally relevant information, lack of finance and technology, social values and attitudes, and institutional constraints. Regarding the dual problem of climate change limitation and adaptation, the the report states, quote, and I apologize for the technical language, there is no single answer to the question of whether it is feasible to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and adapt to the consequences. Feasibility is considered in this report as the capacity of a system as a whole to achieve a specific outcome. The global transformation that would be needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius requires enabling conditions that reflect the links, synergies, and trade-offs between mitigation, adaptation, and sustainable development. These enabling conditions have many systemic dimensions. Geophysical, environmental ecological, technological, economic, sociocultural, and institutional that may be considered through the unifying lens of the Anthropocene, acknowledging profound, differential, but increasingly geologically significant human influences on the Earth system as a whole. This framing also emphasizes the global interconnectivity of past, present, and human-future environment relations, highlighting the need and opportunities for integrated responses to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. Renowned atmospheric, James, uh, renowned atmospheric scientist James Hansen said of the report, quote, This one did a very good job in, war- in warning about the consequences if we don't do something, and in making clear that we still can do something, but we have to begin very quickly to actually phase down emissions, while in fact emissions will continue to climb, even if, if we don't have some significant policy changes. Such an urgent outlook has led certain climate scientists like Kevin Anderson to argue that we need to act like we are fighting a world war, since we will need to replace almost all of our energy infrastructure, electrify all vehicles, and redesign our cities for public transit, but also remove over 1,000 uh, gigatons of carbon dioxide from the air. In reference to his prescribed global outlook that he compares with a new Marshall Plan, Kevin Anderson told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, quote, The Marshall Plan was the deliberate strategy after the Second World War to try to reconstruct Europe after it had been destroyed. So that is probably the nearest analogy we have to the scale of the challenge that we actually face to decarbonize, to shift away from a fossil fuel-based energy system to a low-carbon energy system, and to do that within the wealthy parts of the world, really within about two decades, and probably three to three and a half decades for the slightly poorer parts of the world. He added, quote, we're not going to do that through small price mechanisms, through just tweaking the markets. It is going to require strategic intervention by governments to make the necessary rates of change. But there is a positive narrative behind this in that this transformation will come with lots of long-term secure job opportunities, not just in building low-carbon power stations, but in the massive electrification program that will be necessary and in making building infrastructure suitable for the 21st century, so you require much less energy to heat or to cool it. Regarding the problem of mobilization and the role of scientists in the public debate, he said, quote, We're quite direct and honest about the impact side, but when it comes to what we have to do about this, we run scared. We don't want to scare the politicians or the public. We don't want to move away from the sort of energy systems that we have today. But when you really look at the numbers behind the report, then we're talking about a complete revolution in our energy system. And this is going to beg very fundamental questions about how we run our economies. Anderson went on to argue that the 2008 financial crisis opened a hole in the economy that has not been filled and therefore represents a fleeting opportunity to reform, to, quote, reshape the, economic, the, reshape the economy towards an economy that's suitable for society, not a society that's suitable for the economy. He added, quote, we have to remove the productive capacity of our society from building second homes or private jets or private yachts or large four-wheel drive cars to building public transit elect- public transport, electrification, improved homes for everyone. So it's a shift of that productive capacity, the resources and the labor from, if you like, the luxury of the 20% to the the essential low-carbon infrastructure for all of us. In a series of tweets, Guardian columnist George Monbiot wrote that we require, quote, mobilization on a massive scale through groups such as 350.org to put environmental breakdown at the front and center of political life. We need to break through vested interests, denial, and system justification to force government action. This is the fight for our lives. 
Yet most people have not, 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 yet, not yet acknowledged this, let alone joined it. So all, all those of us who have done so have a duty to recruit, to break the awkward silence and talk about the subject other people want to avoid. We need to get embarrassing about it, to overcome our own reticence, even when we are labeled Jeremiah's or Cassandra's, and risk upsetting people and alerting them to what is happening and what we need to do. Caroline Lucas, former head of the UK Green Party, said, quote, Ministers have a choice. They can keep coating business-as-usual policies in a green veneer and watch as floods and heat waves become the norm. Or they can embrace the opportunities to create a fairer, healthier, safer society that comes with the economic overhaul we need. Jiang Kejun, one of the authors of the report, said, quote, I hope this can change the world. Two years ago, even I didn't believe 1.5 degrees Celsius was possible. But when I look at the options, I have confidence it can be done. I want to use this report to do something in China. In spite of big climate pariahs like the USA and now likely Brazil, he said, quote, We set an example and show what can be done. This is more about technology than politics. On the same topic, Kevin Anderson stated, quote, The general trend line is more recognition that climate change is a serious issue. Even the poll data in the states shows this. I have not seen data from Brazil, so I'm not sure. So we are seeing climate change events, and people are thinking that this is an important issue. It's up to us to redouble our efforts and make sure that we will move in the right direction and not to run scared of the Trumps of this world. There are plenty of them. They will come and they will go. But the overall issue of climate change, the physics of climate change, is here to stay, regardless of the ephemeral whims of the occasional president. All right. Well, well written, Dave. Thank you very much. Uh, I actually just have a, a very brief comment, and then I want to pass you over to Stefan for uh, more prepared remarks. My immediate response to while you were talking, I had a number of thoughts. I will, I will re uh, re uh, reduce it down to a single comment, <laughs> which was that what do we mean? What do we mean when we say like war footing or wartime footing or like a World War II type mobilization? What does that mean? What, do, what does that mean in practical terms? Mm. What that means in practical terms is that describes any situation where a society or a country or a you know organized politically organized group of people make decisions that have short-term downsides short-term sacrifices for a long-term greater good that outweighs those short-term costs right so example uh it was not to the Americans' economy benefit generally immediately. And now that Americans are sort of a bad example in a, like a lot of ways. Uh, but the idea, like, it was not uh, better for their economy as a whole to shift their entire economy production to guns. The only reason it worked is because they had a giant market for guns. But, it, like, you only did that because you had a war, right? If there wasn't a, a reason, a guaranteed need for that demand, it would not have otherwise made sense for them to do that, right? Well, well and, they, and, and during those times, they quite directly said, they, they rationed people's food, you know, the victory Precisely. garden, you know, like every decision was in some way tied to that movement, right? Like even, even people who were at home, there was that message of like, okay, you need to make sure that you eat, like you need to grow your own vegetables because the vegetables we need, we're sending across to this other mission. Precisely. Like everything is sort of, every, right. every part of life is, is, is filtered through this yeah. lens. Every uh, sacrifices have to be made. Short term sacrifices have to be made because of a longer term thing that is more valuable. And it also describes, and there's sort of same concept, but in another way of looking at it, is that your entire economy or the entire social group, whatever that, however that may be defined, is sort of like all pointing towards that same goal. So when people are saying this is what's required, what they're saying is, no, you cannot have your cake and eat it too, Justin Trudeau. They're saying that as a fact. We looked at the numbers. Right. It cannot be done. Hmm. That's what they're saying. And, and and I wish those two dots were connected more often because they're often said like in the same article, right? Justin Trudeau says this and, you know, but, and then someone else is talking about wartime footing, but they never point out that those two ideas are in direct conflict. Right. And which of those two things do you think is right? So I, anyway, I have a million more comments I could make, but I just wanted to pause on that for a minute. What are we talking about? We're talking about, yes, there will be short-term consequences to our economy, but it, the calculation has been done. The math has been done. It is in a long-term benefit, both economically and otherwise, to do this. That is what that means. Well, well, and, and to, to sort of somewhat jump off that, the, the one thing that I sort of noticed as one of the responses to this report uh, coming from more conservative groups was to sort of look at this price range of, uh, of carbon that they're suggesting. That in, by 2030, there needs to be a, a price on carbon between $135 to $5,500 wow. per ton. Yeah, huge, huge number, right? Um, you know, we, what we have, th we have. I think the highest in Canada right now is forty dollars, maybe. Uh, it's either it's either thirty or forty, depending on on what BC did. Um, but like the 
this is the this is and what's funny about that is the, re- the response that came uh, to uh, from the conservative side was was then took that five thousand five hundred dollars per ton and then was like that's going to be twelve dollars a liter uh, of, of, for gasoline each, <laughs> extra extra are you going to pay that and it's like. I don't think you understand what the point is. Or how economies work. <laughs> yeah. Well, the idea like, is no, no one will pay for it, and yeah. that's the society will develop another resource. <laughs> exactly. That's right? how time works. Well, exactly. <laughs> that, that's what I thought was so funny about this response was it was sort of like, yes, it is unreasonably high. That's why we would you know, maybe have electric vehicles. If you stop building oil refineries, we'll stop burning oil eventually. Is that what you want? Yes, yes, <laughs> it is what we like, want. Yeah, like it's like it's it's almost as if it's as if it hasn't fully sunk into the conservative mindset that the actual goal of this would be full decarbonization, which means the end of fossil fuels. Well, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's like that part is it's as if their mindset is like, oh, it it will just be it'll be harder to drive. So no, you just won't drive in the way you currently do. It's like it's such a complete failure of imagination of what a different world might look like that you're doing the calculations of how expensive a thing you're literally trying to price out of usefulness is. You know, this is like this is like someone like 30, 40 years ago being like, you know, banning the mining of asbestos will raise the cost of asbestos everywhere and then we won't be able to use it in houses. <laughs> what will builders do? It's like, yes, that's the point of this. I feel like like the media, like so the the political forces that, uh, that defend big oil are obviously still in full swing and very powerful, but I found uh, just anecdotally that the media... Uh, opposition. So their their media puppets of those forces are often seemed very disorganized and sort of discombobulated recently. They kind of seem to put climate change down is partially, there's a number of factors, right? So it's not only due to this, but I feel like they sort of, they don't know what to say about it right now, or they're not concerned that it's a threat. And I think part of that is that like so often when I'm, and particularly in this case, I'm referring to American (laughs) politics, but like it it applies generally as well, which is that the right wing is so used to straw manning the left's arguments into like a thousand times what they're actually asking for to the put to try and scare people that they're confused when we're like, yeah, yeah, no, that is what I want. Right. right. So an example, right. Right? Double like, down we like, would like you to not be able to put 700 rounds in a magazine. They're trying to ban all guns. Uh, we would like to not have oil. They're trying to ban. Oh wait. Yeah, no, I did say that. Yeah. We like, I think, th- I think that actually throws them off a little right. because they don't, there's nowhere for them to do that game to, right? right? Like there's no higher level. They're trying to ban all economies. Like there's nothing, there's nothing up from that. They can scaremonger to that actually is <laughs> like anyone would, would take seriously. And so I think Strategically, from a media point of view, I feel like right now they're actually a bit discombobulated. Well, I, th- I actually do feel like, and this is my last note because we're running out of time for the section, um, I do actually feel like the response to this IPCC report has been different than previous ones, and that in the last year or two, I have actually felt like I've seen some general shifting in this the conversation, uh, in that I do actually think it's, 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 it's further along the conversation of actually taking it seriously, and actually, in, and, and more and more people are, are are responding in a way that seems to be needed to. Um, you know, you see how much Andrew Scheer, pressure currently Andrew Scheer is for actually having a climate change policy. Um, now, he might release it and then it won't, wouldn't exist and blah, blah, blah. But I do actually think that I, I have noticed a little bit of a, of, a, of a change. And the last thing that I will say before I before I throw to, for throw to break is that this kind of thing, like, you know, you know who would be totally okay if we added a $5,500 price uh, on carbon uh, by 2030? Everyone who lives in Denmark. Uh, <laughs> because Denmark has, uh, has, has basically embraced a plan to ban petrol cars by 2030. I know. <laughs> you just blew the lid off the giant. You, shh, we weren't supposed to talk about that. Did you not hear about our, <laughs> oh, right, our, our, our anti-Denmark? Our, our, no, our private funding from, oh, from like, Denmark. Big Denmark. Oh, Big yes. Denmark's funding us. <laughs> oh, man. I wish we had that Big Denmark money. Um, but yeah, so this would be a thing. Uh, like, this, this is the solution, conservatives. The solution is not to tr- pay $12 a liter. It's to use electric vehicles. That would be the solution we're talking about. That and stop crying wolf, because yes, we're coming for your cars. <laughs> uh, and to music break, Megan. <laughs> and 
we're back here listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all over the world, uh, but particularly in Canada because we play favorites here in The Green Majority <laughs> and uh, and possibly in space. But the best place of all of the places is on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. Uninterrupted, uh, listen to it at your own speed. If we talk too fast, you can rewind it. Uh, and Dave's wonderful notes. Thank you, Dave. Mm. Uh, one quick final piece of show business before I pass you back to Dave uh, is that we've received a number of emails uh, with regards to content on the show, particularly actually in response to last week's special guest host episode. Uh, we mm. did receive them. I'm in school right now and incredibly busy. Continue sending us email. I'll go back to you eventually. That's it. Back We're, to Dave. So are we with Lauren? Yes, you are. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so yes, I'm going to do some uh, some tepid tech, nine, tech mine uh, notes here and then we can go off. Um, so yes, a massive mine, uh, 110 kilometers north of Fort McMurray is uh, now in the middle of a hearing that will determine its viability. According to tech, the company proposing the mine, it will cost 20 billion to build, employ 7,000 workers during construction and 2,500 day to day and provide Canadian governments with $66 billion in taxes and royalties over 41 years of operation which after which period it will have disturbed a presently pristine area half the size of Edmonton, including traditional indigenous territory and a bison reserve. While some companies like Suncor have said they will not build new mines until new pipelines are built, Tech plans to go ahead with the huge mines should it be approved, even if no new pipelines are ever completed. The CBC reports that, quote, Tech wouldn't say at what price it would need to sell a barrel of oil to be profitable. Many First Nations have reached agreements with the company involving financial compensation, employment opportunity, and ecosystem protection, with at least one uh, labeling the deal a turning point. The Mikisiu Cree First Nation, however, has yet to sign a deal, asking for a buffer zone between the mine and Wood Buffalo National Park. They want to see the government, not the company, step in and ensure their concerns are met. Environmental groups like the Sierra Club have raised environmental concerns at the hearing, stating that direct emissions would be equivalent to adding 900,000 vehicles to the roads. Mark Worthing told the hearing, quote, There's absolutely no way any project, activity, or development that results in this magnitude of greenhouse gas emissions should even be entertained. The Oil Sands Environmental Coalition estimates that the mine would cause 6 million tons of direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions every year. Pro-oil sands analysts argue that emissions from tar sands are in fact dropping, and apparently that new projects can still allow for Alberta to remain below its emissions target of 100 million tons annually. They argue that, quote, the average intensity of upstream greenhouse gas emissions from oil sands productions fell by 21% between 2009 and 17. The CBC reports that, quote, the study states this decline has come from carbon capture and storage, using natural gas instead of diesel to run heavy haul trucks, heating plants and natural gas instead of petroleum coke, and using solvents instead of heat intensive techniques to extract and process bitumen. This decline is, of course, in the intensity of oil sands emissions rather than total emissions, so it's unclear how it relates to Alberta's emissions target. Yeah, so this is one of those examples of the uh, the idea that, like, this is this is tar sands expansion. This is undeniably expansion. Mm. Um, but obviously, uh, Lauren, I think you've been following this a little bit closer. So, what are what are what are your takeaways? Yeah, it's 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 just it's another baffling example of the federal government. Obviously, this is sort of within Alberta. It's a different situation than a pipeline. The federal government doesn't necessarily have any jurisdiction or say over whether or not it gets it gets built. But but they're expressing support for it, and and this is slated to be the largest open pit tar sands mine in the entire world. It's, it's colossal. If it gets built and if it gets up and running, it's, it's slated to have an operation period of 41 years. And, and when the IPCC releases a report this week that says that we need to be entirely decarbonized by 2050, like those things don't jive at all. And, and we all know it. And, and the fact that, <laughs> that tech has the audacity to come forward and be like, this mine is going to be adopting best practices and it's only going to be releasing four megatons of carbon dioxide a year when 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 even organizations like the Canadian Energy Research Institute, which is like to a degree funded by the um, oil and gas industry, are saying like, mm, actually not. It's, it's going to be closer to something like 40 megatons a year, um, which which, yeah, uh, at this point when I think I think Alberta is putting out something like 70 megatons 
of carbon dioxide a year if if they initiate this bitumen mine um, that that puts out something like 40 megatons of carbon dioxide a year. That puts us well past their their cap of, of 100 megatons. Sorry, I know that's a ton of numbers and it's <laughs> kind of jumbled, but it's just like, I don't know, bottom, like we... What are we? Do? We can't afford. We can't afford the largest open pit mine in the entire world to be up and running for forty years. It's uh, it's baffling. Well, and it's it's one of those things where it really it it fundamentally is a is a fight between you know really what twenty forty looks like or twenty fifty looks like. You know, mm-hmm. like if 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 it, if twenty fifty is a world in which this tech mine is still making money, what does the rest of the world look like? You know, like if, if if with the science that certainly as it is currently, you're looking at 2030, you basically are at a, pl- a place where you start s- seeing a tipping point. Uh, you end up with which which I w- one point I want to point out that if and if that is the case, there will be an entire set. Like you want to talk about uh, civil disobedience. Imagine just being a high school student learning that basically pri- getting to the point where you're 14, ready to rebel against the world, and learning <laughs> that basically uh, the world has already led you into Armageddon. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 then 20 years later. TechMine is still trying to say we are still profitable and we're making money selling oil to you. It, it, I just don't understand the world that these companies think we'll be living in in 30 years. So, sorry, what was the um, you said the the what was the megatons uh, of emissions per year that they uh, they said, and then what though is more likely? What are those two numbers again, Lauren? Okay, so Tech says it's going to be four, like four, four. Okay. So, like if we assume on one hand megatons a year, but that's not including. Like even something as simple that's not inc- that's not including fuel used during the mining process, and that's certainly not including down downstream emissions. Right. If you include both of those things, for instance, well, and and, and everything else, uh, it's it's closer to forty to fifty megatons a year. If you're if you're including sort of like it's it's called like well to wheel emissions. If you're including all of them. So it's, the it's reason negative. I was at, the reason I was asking you for those numbers was I just pulled out my calculator and if we uh, assume the so if we assume because like a lot of the, these conversations happen in that like no 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 we can do both right is the Justin Trudeau thing like yeah yeah we can do both things so at a five thousand dollar per megaton uh, that gives us five billion dollars per megaton mm-hmm. uh, or five thousand dollars a ton is five billion dollars per megaton so that's between twenty billion and uh, uh, two hundred billion dollars just in carbon taxes on that single mine <laughs> if we were if to we're have this mass universe where uh, carbon uh, where uh, carbon Trudeau I literally just said carbon Trudeau uh, uh, if his magical universe existed they would be paying between uh, five and uh, somewhere between five and four hundred billion dollars just in taxes on on that single mine yeah and, and I, I I'm so fascinated by the consistent refusal to include downstream actions when you're when you're when you're digging up the thing to burn it like if the purpose is to then eventually emit it I, I fundamentally do not understand what kind of magical thinking you have to you have to be living in where you don't include the burning it as a part of the of the emissions that could be caused. Like what no. do you think we're just pulling it and then just burying it again? <laughs> the reason you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes in hospitals is because it doesn't matter if you're blowing it in their face. You're still part of the same air system. <laughs> So uh, you have to count. I was like, well, uh, you know, we can't count any of the smoke that was caused by me blowing it in the window because I wasn't technically in the hospital. No, that's not how this works. Well, and and I mean, it's the precedent was set with Energy East by the by the NEB that they were going to start including downstream emissions in their assessments, and and that's why Energy East died. And it, if we set that precedent with that project, we need to be carrying that through with every project that we're assessing thereafter. Like it's. Why did that only apply to that one project and then never again? Obviously, because it killed that project, and, and they don't want them all to be axed. But like, you, you can't backtrack. <laughs> once, yeah. once you set that precedent, once you said that no, we're going to start including downstream emissions because hey, they contribute to climate change. Like no, that that means that we have to do that with every project thereafter. Well, I mean, technically they can. It just means he has absolutely no credibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, but true. and it is, and that is sort of this this fundamental challenge, right? Is, is that the what we what we need are are the are mega what's so frustrating actually is that what we need are mega projects in like we're we're simultaneously here as 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 environmentalists arguing for a mega project that would be to reshape our entire energy grid. you'll never have a and bunch of hippies so united over building stuff like in your life it would be a, <laughs> like it would truly be a massive investment right it'd be truly a massive massive project 
uh, of cre- creating a ton of new things, right? Like it would be an absolute, uh, and, and yet, and you know, and, and you see a, a microcosm of that with the with the with the large wind, um, the wind farm that was that was going to come into Ontario until Ford scrapped it, and so it's not like it's not like environmentalists are out here saying don't build anything. It, it, it it's it's fundamentally that like. That this particular this particular plan does not function twenty years down the road, and and at some point, if there were if there were other contexts, I just sort of I, I sort of wonder what the response would be. You know, if there, in, in other contexts where where simple you know where 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 scientists scientific community was saying in twelve years, you know, very bad things will happen unless we stop doing this thing, and someone comes out and says this will make money doing that bad thing for the next forty years. Like that's bad. Like what I don't understand yet is that it, it what clearly has not changed, and this is sort of what I'm waiting. What I think a lot of us are waiting for is that the investment community still is not convinced we will do anything about it. Like that's it, right? The investment right. The community people who is are making still, bets, yeah, they, and don't have and and more importantly, don't have to like apologize for their decisions because they're semi anonymous. Right. Well, so it's not like they're a politician declaring a policy. No, right? yeah, they don't exactly. have to stand behind. Right. Their but also, badge. but also, their money is that line, right? Like they yeah. they have to make and and they and they still do not believe we'll do this. Like right. basically, right now, you have a huge set of, of 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 the of the investment machine still so confident that we will just destroy ourselves. Like that's that's their current bet, and that they've not removed money from these projects. Like let's just short actively, the entire Earth system well, in the sense of shorting a stock, right? right? Which is where you bet that it will fail. <laughs> like they're shorting <laughs> the entire planet. They're not exactly saying it, but that is until they start, until they refuse to be funding these projects. They're that's what they're saying. And I, I'm just sort of I'm sort of left in this sort of confused state as to like when when will this the investment community. Uh, decide that they are going to take this new world seriously, and and maybe they won't. Maybe they're maybe they maybe they'll, maybe we'll just consistently maybe we'll we'll, we'll walk right off a rock right off a cliff. But I think it's more about it being a reactive mindset. Like they don't see those individual investors don't see themselves as setting things. They see themselves as responding to things or making assumptions about things. I don't I don't think the your average investor, big or small, thinks of themselves as being in the driver's seat. Uh, but that's that's a totally other conversation. Yeah. We don't need to get pulled yeah. off that direction. But and and I also do think that I. I I do think that there's something that we'll, I think we'll come back to at some point is what Elizabeth Warren brought into the set, brought to the floor of the Senate uh, a couple of weeks ago about about a next stage of capitalism. I think that that bill that she that did that sort of framing of that conversation that she started started as well as the the Green New Deal that's being brought by the by by uh, by Democratic Socialists in the states as well. Those two things I think would be the best hope I think for a 2020 to 2030 sort of revolution that we're looking for. Uh, but we're heading towards the end of it so i want to give uh you the last word lauren what do you think oh this is this is more depressing than i wanted it to be (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i guess um just one thing we haven't mentioned yet today um which is in some ways a really really fantastic development um but obviously the government is really pushing protected areas and as part of that effort there's um there's some new indigenous protected areas that are on the books, and one was just announced yesterday. Um, and I know I'm not pronouncing it properly. My apologies. Um, Adeje, um, up in sort of northern territories, uh, it's it's a really really massive indigenous protected area. It's kind of the first of its kind, and and in a lot of ways that's really really fantastic because um, in some ways it means the government is is <laughs> not nearly enough, but but is is looking to indigenous communities for the lead there. But um, but again, it just sort of drives home the fact that like yeah, that's really awesome that this territory was was set aside to be protected um in the name of like preserving cultures and communities and and obviously biodiversity but um hey that ipcc report said something like uh, i don't know uh territory is going to be cut in half in terms like we're going to experience increased habitat loss at the hands of climate change because species simply won't be able to live where they did before because of shifting climate so um I'll, I, I don't know carving out a ton of space for Biodiversity and and habitat preservation doesn't really do a lot if we continue to barrel forward towards three point seven degrees or whatever. So, 
Happy Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm finding it easy to imagine a situation where a bunch of these landmark uh, deals maybe once around. I don't know any details, so I'm not making any comment on the on the deal you mentioned. But like a a legitimately significant, you know, uh, land uh, ownership agreement with a bunch of uh, indigenous communities, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of major populated city uh, areas in Canada, like Vancouver, due to climate change, are inhabitable, and all of a sudden, you have once again millions of uh, white people going, (laughs) "Hey, can we um like possibly stay on?" Recolonize. Hey, no guns this time, though. We're just we're asking real nice because we just finished five minutes ago handing it over to you legally, and now we're kind of in a bind. Uh, do you mind helping us out? Yeah, that'll right. be. The There's day. certainly a possibility of recolonization, especially out of the coasts. Especially see every single time you see what happens in Florida, you know, like which we are covering ironically in the next. In, uh, not ironically, uh, maybe the opposite. Of ironically, usefully in the next section, <laughs> what is going on in Florida? Um, which is uh, which will be which turns out it's another hurricane. The answer almost always is a hurricane, uh, and it is once again a hurricane. Uh, but thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, we'll hear you from you again next week, and let's go to our music break. Megan, what do we got? And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful and very appreciated radio community partners or on the podcast, the best place to listen. Uh, we're now into the home stretch, the final segment. We return you to the soothing voice of Dave for the final headlines. Mm. Yes. So uh, coming out of the blue with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, Hurricane Michael hit Florida's panhandle this week, landing near Mexico Beach Wednesday afternoon. Over a million power outages are expected as it is the highest category storm to ever hit the Florida panhandle, which is the part of the state that is not jutting out into the ocean. The storm headed into Georgia Wednesday evening, becoming the highest category hurricane to hit Georgia in 110 years. My sister Megan Hostetter pointed out as I had lunch with her on Wednesday that we need a new model uh, that we may need a new model for categorizing storms as the current measurements are based solely on sustained wind speed. However, as with Florence, which recently hit the Carolinas last month, global warming was expected to cause Michael to travel slower than normal and to therefore cause a lot more flooding than would otherwise occur. Michael has indeed now moved on to the Carolinas, releasing more rain onto the already flooded states. The Washington Post is calling it, quote, one of the four most powerful hurricanes ever to strike the United States, and that, quote, metal posts as thick as tree trunks were folded in half. They also quoted Curtis Locus, a transportation worker, as stating, quote, a Panama City transportation worker, as stating, quote, uh, this was a community in the middle of a forest. Now the forest is gone, and so is the community. It's a beautiful place. This is Party Town, USA. Now it's a devastated town, USA. Everything along the coastline was devastated like a war zone. As renowned storm tracker Jim Cantori put it, this thing's a monster, and it's not going away. Residents in Panama City are sleeping in cars on benches while they figure out what to do. Florida Governor Rick Scott told the Weather Channel, quote, This is going to be a long recovery, but Florida is resilient. We help each other, and we survive. We worked all night in endangered circumstances. Regarding the relationship between climate change and hurricanes, climate scientist James Hansen told Democracy Now!, quote, As everyone knows, and I think even the public understands, if the ocean is warmer, that provides the fuel for these tropical storms, and that's exactly what we're seeing. He also pointed out that hurricanes are fueled by the rising sea, which has gone up by 40 centimeters along the eastern coast of the United States, Uh, the increased volume of water vapor in the atmosphere due to warming, and this warming is also slowing down storms like Harvey and Florence, which causes a lot more flooding. Regarding other extreme weather events occurring worldwide, whose devastation is in part attributable to the exacerbating effects of climate change, Democracy Now! quotes the UN meteorological chief, who stated, quote, There's an extreme urgency and countries giving their pledges under the Paris Agreement, and so far the progress hasn't been good enough, Uh, that we would move towards 1.5 or 2 degrees target. 
So there's clearly a need for a much higher ambition level to reach even two degrees. So we are more moving towards three to five at the moment. There are some estimations. What is the difference between 1.5 and two degrees? And one of the major issues is that there would be 420 million fewer people suffering, suffering because of climate change if we were able to limit the warming to 1.5 degrees. Already the emissions that we have emitted into the atmosphere means that this negative trend will continue for the coming decades. So that's going to happen, and that means a growing amount of disasters and challenges from climate change. Climate scientist Kevin Anderson said of the hurricane, quote, Whilst I can't comment on this particular hurricane and say this hurricane was caused by climate change, the severity of this hurricane and the severity of some of the other events that we've seen in recent years certainly has been exacerbated by issues of climate change by our burning of fossil fuels. And the meteorologists should be making that clear link when they're discussing these issues during the weather forecast within the U.S. Yeah, so let's let's briefly first start with with the with the conversation about Rick Scott, uh, and then Florida more generally, um, and then sort of the this, this, this like so this particular hurricane, it's um, the world's least turtle-like looking bald man. <laughs> so he's got quite the neck, right. um, but but he is he's. This is what's amazing. It seems that often, uh, not not entirely, but often, especially Florida, there is there is probably no part in the United States that is that is more at risk to climate change than Florida. Uh, with uh, overall, you know, I think there's certain parts in other places, and obviously Hawaii probably has a bit of a bit of an issue. Puerto Rico as well, um, but but Florida is specifically uh, primed to be a to to be to be some to be one of the first places that would be sort of created in uninhabitable. Uh, by by climate change, uh, for a couple weird reasons. Well, one obvious reason it's it happens to be exactly in an area where many hurricanes sort of make landfall um, in in Florida. But it's also built on 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 porous rock, and so water it's it's actually quite difficult to 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 protect yourself from rising sea levels and other things like that because because sea levels can come underneath the the, mm. the actual the actual thing and then rise up into it, and it is it is a very low lying state. And so all of these things sort of lend it to being the kind of place that is really, really primed for being hard hit by climate change. And yet it continually, seemingly decides that everything will still be fine and, and, and elects these, these, these Republican governors who, who go out of their way to be unhelpful. You know, it's not just that Rick Scott was sort of a, it was an example of a, um, of sort of the, the sort of conservative that accepts climate change but doesn't do anything about it. He was, you know, he's he's firmly in the climate change, you know, denier camp. Um, you know, he fully supported he he, he fully supported Trump's uh, decision to withdraw from the climate change uh, from from the Paris Agreement. You know, he's he approved what Florida's so-called anti-science law, uh, which was which was basically uh, allowing for legal challenges uh, to t- on teaching the realities of climate change and global warming to states' classrooms. Wow. You know, like he was he came out and, and has done actively damaging things to try to understand climate change while being in the place that is. Most most directly for like most directly l- related to this, you know, it'd be like if California spent a whole bunch of time trying to l- allow earthquakes to happen. Yeah. You know, it's it, it it's one of these things where it's it is I, I, I it is interesting uh, as a as a state to have that sort of combination, um, and and it you know and it's and, and it's also you know it's, it's like the states says what Florida continue on to be almost ridiculous you know Florida is is just getting one percent of its power generation from renewable energy yeah like these are the how how when you live in a place that is so consistently hit by things by by the obvious and by by, by the obvious problem and also sort of our you know long any sort of forward think any sort of 10 20 year track record down the road if you're on the coast of Florida you're just you, you can't live there you know I, I I would urge people to sort of look at the at the images of of, of what Hurricane Michael has done to uh, to Mexico Beach and it, it it it's just it just it's, it's not there anymore you know it's it's as if it's as if you know you, you sort of you normally used to seeing this sort of devastation with with um, tornadoes because it's so localized but this is like a whole town mm-hmm. that really is just much of it flattened in a way that is truly striking it was probably obama though 
Right. It was probably yeah, Obama. Obama. Obama just... came out of the sea and dragged people's homes back into its depths. <laughs> well, not him. Obviously, the uh, the Muslim cabal of secret uh, take down the America. Uh, you know, the the mm. secret cabal of Muslims. Mm. Of course, the Aquarian Muslim that. cabal. Yes. Mm. Uh, did you know? And, and in fact, the Illu- Illuminati, all Muslim. Like 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 Scott is not. You know, he's not Trump in that fashion. Right. He's not. Just a... we're played on random radio, random radio stations. Yeah. Just in case. Sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, that's the, like, the, like there's a level of which at some point the sort of more, the, the more con- sober-minded conservatives, conservatism, have to explain to people who live, say, in, in, this, in this place, uh, you know, in, in Mexico Beach, why they are going to let this happen to them again in four, five, six, ten years. You know, th- you know, this was it was the strongest hurricane to hit the the Panhandle, um, and it and it uh, it's now in the Carolinas, which are which you know was recently already had f- severe flooding from the previous hurricane we reported on literally two weeks ago, and and so this sort of need to I I'm, I'm sort of I, I don't yet know what will transition these these stories of hurricanes and stuff like that to being changing up people's voting patterns. You know, like, are the people who lose their homes to Hurricane Michael in any way more likely to... I don't know, because there's a, cer- there's a certain hard-hearted, resilient, conservative mindset where they don't, you know, the, you, you just sort of, you just fight through the, fight through the rain. You right. Know? It's, the weather is God's work, and uh, we batten down the hatches. And it's, and it's a point of pride to simply, like, withstand it and to not change and to, right? It was, of course, like, mm-hmm. this, I mean, I don't want to get pulled into a religious discussion, but there's this idea of, like, sort of faith in things and faith in, our, well, Donald Trump wouldn't lie to us. And so anything you say to me about proving that he lied, I'm just like, mm-hmm. la, 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 la. And I'm proud of that fact because, like, it's that fact that I won't listen is there's a source of pride around my closed mind. Uh, and that that closed-mindedness and that absolute assurance, despite you know varying degrees of reasons for those uh, confirmed beliefs, are entirely based on the idea of never wavering being, in fact, a yeah. like a value that, that is can, highly valued. That can appear to be a noble, steadfast principle right. where you're just where you're holding on to what you know to be the case, and you don't need to change it because you're brave. Right, but but there still is that you know to, there still is a serious money question here which is that you know these places that that are that are becoming that are ent- that are in these sort of you know more dangerous zones um, are are becoming in uninsurable some of them already are uninsurable uh, because of these disruptions which means that the that will affect the the value of those homes and you're, you're what one of the uh, an, a, a futurist uh, climate futurist named Alex Steffen has a has a has an interesting thread uh, thought process around how much these types of um, types of, of 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 major weather events will impact how people live and where people live, which is that poor people will be forced into these into these areas without uh, which which cannot be insured because they'll they'll be the only homes they can afford, uh, which then means that their wealth is really at the whims of 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 you know of the of nature and and. You can statistically, we're increasing the chance that they will be destroyed, and then they will see their wealth entirely destroyed in that process because they will not be insured, and that the rich people will move themselves into more, uh, more protected areas, which which insurance companies mm. will still insure, and so and which will only further create this this sort of separation. Uh, you know, we're already seeing that America right now has some of the ma- the widest wealth gap between between rich and poor, but at the minute that the one way that a major way that sort of the that that sort of middle and lower class um, individuals are able to sustain their wealth is through property, and to remove that ability from them uh, by by forcing them into places in which forcing them into places in which their their houses are uninsurable and and subject to you know destruction every 10, 15, 20 years by these by these hurricanes is is only going to make that worse, right? There's it's only going to further create that problem. Um, and, and this is a reality that will exist that the, you know, that as I sort of hearkened back to, or I mentioned previously, uh, early on the show about the fact that you are going to see, you know, kids alive right now will be in high school, like kids born around now will be in high school at a time when we know if we have done anything or not. 
And and I don't I do not know how the response of an entire generation of people mm-hmm. basically being informed that they are they are trapped into unmitigated climate change is going to respond. And you know if you want to and if you want to to pretend that that response is going to be oh that was totally cool you guys got sweet cars for a while or like oh that yacht <laughs> that's great that's totally fine like mega yachts love mega yachts <laughs> like like can you ima- like imagine how insulting even the concept of mega yachts. It should be to everyone always, but also it would be to someone who is like who's turning the age of 20 in a world that is now an unmitigated climate change. You know, like these are this is the audacious level of wealth being shown off today within the within variety of places is going to become truly abhorrent. Uh, in the eyes of history, obscene, absolutely obscene. You know, and, and yeah. like it's it's it, the amount of which you're gonna the, the amount of which the imagining you know coming to a come to of age with an understanding where we're at in the world and then looking back you know fifteen twenty years ago to people to people now to sort of you know showing off the level of just complete obscenely useless wealth. Uh, being displayed everywhere is 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 truly going to be a, a fundamentally um, like shaping uh, the minds of these kids. And if I were the obscenely rich, I would get on trying to at least say you did something uh, because because you know it, at some point the the reactions are going to become much more extreme than they are now. Yeah. Um, especially as the, the further we're tied into this whole system. Uh, we have about two minutes left. I do, if you don't mind, I steal a last comment. The, the the time comparison you made there about, you know, by the time the people there will be a certain age made me think of, you know, uh, people around that age, and, and that's a little bit younger than me, but in the same ballpark as, as our ages here in the studio. And a lot of people in my sort of peer group right now are, if they haven't started having kids, are in that thing where they're starting to think about having kids. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that... The conversation, one of those things that like new parents like can fret about, like uh, besides the immediacy of a baby is like, you know, the types of things you'll have to do as a parent that you'd sort of never done before. And one of them is that a lot of new parents are kind of get very uncomfortable. It depends on the person. Uh, but it's like explaining sex to that. Like, how am I going to explain sex? Like I'm, they're terrified when they're kids. Imagine these round of people like, <laughs> never mind sex. I have to explain why granddaddy ruined your life yeah. and all of the <laughs> lives of every child to come after you. Sex is no problem. We'll cover that on day one. It's, yeah. You're going to, it's going to be, how did we, how did grandma ruin the world and granddaddy ruin the world? That's going to be the real conversation. Uh, we have to go on that high note, though, uh, unfortunately. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Take care. You're listening, or we're listening to The Green Majority, greenmajority.ca. We'll take care. We'll talk to you real soon.